going to pick up on 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're calling this series Living in the Light of the Gospel. Living in the Light of the Gospel. In chapter 1, 2, and 3, Paul kind of gives narrative. He spends more time giving a recap of of what God had done through him and in the lives of the Thessalonians. Uh, he offers uh, two prayers uh, within uh, in chapter 1 and chapter 3. He also offers one at the end for the Thessalonians. But but here in, in chapter 4, there's a, there's a pivot in, in the focus of the letter. In chapter 4, the apostle Paul starts giving exhortation for the Thessalonians to live lives that are consecrated to God, set apart, holy, sanctified. And he lets them know that this is what God wants for your life. Now, as we talk about this theme of holiness and being set apart, I know that, that some people can push back and it's not very popular uh, in the world. You know, it's not a, a, a celebrated value to be consecrated uh, morally. Uh, but the Bible over and over points us to living lives that are consecrated to God. Um, I've titled this message, Set Apart for God. And one of the things that we'll see today that it's not just uh, living a consecrated life, a holy life. It's not just what we're set apart from, but it's what and who we're set apart for that the Bible also puts emphasis on. And so let's pray. We're going to dig into chapter 4, and I'm going to be mindful, parents, that we have young ears here this morning, and I'm going to do my best to preach a PG uh, sermon. So, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your saints. And thank you for revealing to us your will, your will for our lives. And may we delight in doing your will. May your will be done. May your will be priority over our wills and our agendas. May we be surrendered to what you want for us as individuals and as a church. May we reflect a, a, a church who has kingdom priorities. And would you sanctify us where, um, where there is guilt and shame and where there is bondage and addiction in this area of holiness I pray that you would bring cleansing, forgiveness, and freedom by the power of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit as we open up the pages of Scripture. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And I have it up on the screen if you don't have your Bibles uh, open there. I'm reading from the ESV version. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all such things, as we told you beforehand, 
and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives us his Holy Spirit to you. This is the word of the Lord. So here's our big idea this morning. Namely, that God calls his people to be set apart for him in his purposes. And he empowers us by his Holy Spirit to live holy lives. God calls us to be set apart for him and his purposes. And he empowers us by his Holy Spirit to live holy lives. Now, before we we jump into the points here that I'm going to highlight from this text... I'd first of all just like to, to mention what holiness is, because there's a, there's a number of misconceptions, and I think it's just helpful if, that, if that's the theme of what we're talking about. Um, the, the word is, the Greek word that's translated holiness uh, is also translated sanctification. It's also more, it's described as moral purity or sanctity, uh, and it's used about 10 times in the New Testament. There's another uh, Greek word that it comes from. Uh, that's used about uh, 233 times in the New Testament. And it means it's often translated holy, to be holy. And the noun version of this uh, is is what saints, it's, it's where what's translated as saints. The saints are holy ones, those who've been made and declared holy by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Jerry Bridges points out in his book, In the Pursuit of Holiness, he says that holiness is not a series of do's and don'ts, but conformity to the character of God in obedience to the will of God. It's not a series of just do's and don'ts. So a lot of folks, when they think of holiness and they think of living a holy Christian life, a lot of people see Christianity as that. It's just a bunch of rules and religion. But yes, there are rules. And, and it could rightly be called a religion, but, but we, we argue that it's about a relationship with the living God, a love relationship, an authentic relationship with the living God who is holy, who is righteous, and he calls us to be like him. And that is the basis and the foundation for our holiness. The fact that God is holy and, G- and God sent his son Jesus to die and be buried and raised from the dead to make us holy. That's the basis for holiness. It's not just about do's and don'ts. Jerry Bridges points out it's about conformity to the character of God. We want to be like Jesus. We're destined for this, to be conformed into the image of Jesus, Romans eight twenty nine. And it's about obedience to the will of God. This, it, this is about what does God want for your life? You see, a lot of people are searching out what God wants for their life. They're searching for the right spouse or they're searching for the right job or the right house to buy or the right car to buy. And, and they're searching for the will of God in those kinds of aspects. But the Bible puts emphasis on this, this the, the will of God being uh, here uh, being moral, uh, being set apart for God, being sanctified, being holy, being conformed into the character of God. Now notice, first of all, that Paul 
prayed for this, for the Thessalonians. Not only does he exhort them in the will of God to do the will of God from, from the authority of what God commands and demands of his people, he exhorts that, uh, but, but he prays for that. This was a part of Paul's prayer. He doesn't just tell them, this is what you guys need to do. As Christians, he prays for them to, to walk in that, to experience that, to live it out. In, in 1 Thessalonians 3.11, the verses uh, th- 11 through 13, just before uh, chapter 4, he says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father and at his coming of our and at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So Paul prays for this before he exhorts them to walk in it. And let me just say this, that this was this was a a, a, a corrupted, a sexually corrupted region in, in the area. And so so the, the Thessalonians were, were being saved out of a culture that was just saturated with impurity and unrighteousness. And so he's calling them to be countercultural. He's calling, he's praying for them and exhorting them in the Lord to be countercultural, to not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed as by the renewing of their minds, so to speak. In, in Romans 12, he, he says that. And then at the end of this letter, he says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. That's make you holy. May he sanctify you completely that your whole spirit, soul, and body may be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Now notice this. I think this is important because God is the ultimate, uh, the, the one who we ultimately need to live a life of holiness. The, the one who makes us holy and the one who empowers holiness. And we'll talk a little bit about that. But this is in the line This is in line with the prayer of Jesus before he went to the cross in John 17. He prayed for believers that they would be sanctified by the truth. John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus, and and Paul says in, in Ephesians chapter 5, that Jesus washes his bride, the church, with the water of the word, and he's going to one day present a bride without spot or blemish. He's going he's gonna to present his people without spot or blemish. Now, let me also say that Paul not, not only prayed for them in this area, but he also affirmed them. He affirmed them in the good that he saw. He didn't just exhort them and what they ought to do, but he affirmed the good that he already saw them doing. Now we see this in chapter one. He affirmed their love that was, that was growing, that was, that was genuine. He affirmed their faith and their hope and their faith and hope uh, that was, that was spreading, that was sounding forth like a trumpet that other people were hearing about the gospel of Jesus Christ through their lives. And so Paul not only exhorted them, you guys do this, but he affirmed them. Okay? Like a father or a mother, he described himself in chapter two. 
He, he described his ministry as being like a mother who's, who's gentle and nurturing. And like a father who exhorts, to, firmly exhorts to, to, to walk worthy of the kingdom of God. And so he not only urged them and exhorted them, and he not only warned them of the danger of living unholy lives, but he affirmed the good work of God's grace in their lives. Now, this is important as Christians because we all need this. We need both affirmation and we need accountability. We, we, need, we need others in the body of Christ to call out where they see God working in our lives and affirm it. He said that, that you, just as you have received from us how you ought to walk to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. He says, I see you guys, you're doing it. Continue to do it more and more. God is pleased with the life that is set apart for him. Paul gives instruction on what it looks like, fleshes it out. What does it look like to live in, in the light of the gospel? What does it look like to live in, in the light of the gospel? It looks like a life that sets its aim on pleasing God and, and does please God. A life that's set apart for God, a life that's consecrated. Uh, he describes how they ought to walk and how they are to please God. And in verse 3, he says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And so he expounds on it a little bit more. This is what God wants for you, and he's explicit, that you abstain from sexual immorality, abstinence, abstaining from, in order that, that you might be devoted to the will of God, or this is the will of God. Jerry Bridges says that the disciple learns that you cannot say no unless there is a bigger yes burning within you. The disciple learns that you cannot say no unless there is a bigger yes burning within you. You see, for, for us saints who pursue a holy life, there is this burning yes to God within us. We want to please God. We want to honor God. We've seen God as good and beautiful and holy and righteous. And we've been impacted by who he is and he rubs off on us as we focus in on who he is and we say yes to, you, to God because his ways are better. We follow his blueprint for sexuality and, and living because his ways are better. And, and those who reject his ways are setting themselves up for a painful, broken path. And so we are to aim to please God. This was the apostle Paul's aim. He said he makes it his aim to please God. When was the last time you thought about the idea of pleasing God? That you can, you can actually live in such a way that brings pleasure to God. Now, Hebrews tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Right? And so living a life that pleases God is a life of faith. A life that's looking in dependence upon Him. But it's also a life that's consecrated and set apart for him. You know, Paul uses the illustration in Second, uh, Second Timothy um, about the servants of the Lord, how he describes them as vessels, vessels of honor. 
And he says, you know, that, that if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful to the master. When you go to the kitchen and you want to get a bowl of cereal or you want to get something to drink, do you not want a vessel that is clean? That is, that has been washed through the dishwasher, right? Or do you want to go, do you choose the one that has gunk and food that's been sitting in the sink for a while? We go for the clean vessel, right? And God cleanses us. He enables us to live lives that are set apart for him. And he fills us. And he uses us. And this is all for our joy. This is not a joy kill. You see, those who see a life of holiness as a joy kill, as a heavy, staunchy, crusty way of life, aren't seeing clearly how the Bible portrays God's will for us. The will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. But when we reject his will, the the lens gets foggy, so to speak. The windshield gets muddy and it's hard to see. It's hard to see God clearly. It's hard to see his will for us clearly. It It makes it harder to make good decisions in life because the windshield is foggy and muddy. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And so notice in verse 4 that a part of living a life that pleases God is is, is a life that exercises self-control. God wants his people to exercise self-control. Verse 4, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. In holiness and honor. Now some theologians think verse 4 mentions that each one should know how to control his own vessel. It's referring to a wife uh, because First Peter mentions the wife as a weaker vessel. Uh, and so some theologians lean in that direction with this interpretation. But I agree with the ESV translation and most of other translations that, that render this as each one should know how to control his own body, his own vessel. Okay, our body, In the New Testament, our bodies are described as vessels. And self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, of, of being led by the Holy Spirit. And those who, those who know God, those who know God, knowing God leads to a life of self-control. You see, the Gentiles who do not know God, they just kind of cut loose and they just run with it. They just let those passions run and destroy their lives. But those who know God and are walking with him and aim to please him are characterized by holiness and honor. They possess their bodies in a way that's honorable to God. An example is a contained river. Uh, Ray Steadman says this, Troll increases the enjoyment of a natural function. When a flooding river is controlled by banks, its intensity is increased. Many young people are discovering in these days when the moral restraints have been removed from sexual practices that it results in a kind of listless flood in which you wade continually with no enjoyment whatsoever. But God has designed sex to be stimulating and arousing. This is why marriage constitutes a kind of channeled control for sex. There's an ample provision made for the stream, but the limits increase the intensity and enjoyment. The limits increase the intensity and the enjoyment. 
This is what God has in mind as a part of the process of producing a whole person. Anything that tears down those boundaries destroys the beauty of wholeness. You see, God's ways are better. He knows what's best for our joy, for our good, and for his glory. Another way to describe this self-control is a fire pit or a fireplace. This is a great time of year to break out the fire pit and roast some marshmallows and sit around the fire in the backyard. Or pretty soon we'll be turning on fireplaces inside the house. And those are great as long as the fire stays where it's supposed to stay. Right? But if, but if the fire breaks out of those boundaries, it's going to destroy our home or our backyard or, or somebody, right? Sexual intimacy is great within the boundaries of marriage to be celebrated as a gift from God. And it's just a profound thing that it's through that children are, are brought forth into the world in that context with a man and a woman and a married, committed relationship. So fires are good when they're controlled and when they're contained. They keep us warm. They can cook our food for us. We can put our food over the fire and cook them, enjoy them. The next thing I want to look at in verse 6 is that God will punish those who practice sexual immorality. So he not only affirms and teaches, this is what God wants for his people, but Paul says these, these heavy words here. He says that no one transgresses and wrongs his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warn you. Now some translations there instead of saying the Lord is, the, uh, is an avenger, the Lord will punish. The Lord will punish. And so God takes this really serious and In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, it says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. In Colossians chapter 3, we're told to put to death that which is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now, we're told at least uh, twice in Thessalonians, in Thessalonians, uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 Thessalonians 5, that Jesus delivers us from the wrath. He delivers Christians from the wrath. And a part of being delivered from the wrath and a part of salvation is sanctification, being delivered from habitually living a lifestyle that's being described by the Apostle Paul here in Colossians chapter 3. Or... Um, Ephesians chapter 5. He says, But sexual immorality, all impurity or covetousness must not even be a named among you, as it is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. There's your thanksgiving verse, saints. <laughs> Sorry, I don't just have a nice warm sentimental thanksgiving message for you this morning we're just going through the bible and there's your thanksgiving verse in contrast in contrast to living an immoral impure life live a life of thanks to god a a life that's set apart to god and a part of being set apart to god and for god is giving thanks and praise to his name acknowledging the goodness that he just sends your way every single day 
your taste buds and the ability to enjoy pumpkin pie is a gift from God. The relationships that you have, your kids, your wife, your husband is a gift from God. The ability to have health and be able to work and be productive in society is a gift from God. And there's a number of gifts that we can give thanks to God for and focus on instead of speak about and think about those things which are filthy and foolish. Verse 5, it says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually moral or impure or who is, a, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now, these are heavy words, right? Now, Christians, true Christians are not characterized by disobedience and immorality. They're not sons of disobedience. True Christians are those who are marked by love, who are marked by righteousness. First John teases that out and explains, here's what real Christianity looks like. Here's what it looks like to really know God and to really be born again. We live differently. As the Mandalorian says, this is the way. This is the way. As he's describing his conduct and his honorable conduct as a Mandalorian, where he's, he's got to keep his word and he's got to do what's right from his perspective. He says, this is the way. And for Christians, the way of holiness is the way. It's, a, it's, it's following Jesus. It's, it's a highway of holiness. It's a, it's a path of holiness. And, and, and now if you become a Christian... You may discover that you have to start some new, some new trails, some new paths, because the ones that you used to go on aren't characterized by holiness. They're characterized by unholiness. And so you gotta start treading new trails, and it may not be as a smooth path as the other ones that you've been treading on. And so you have to, you have to start walking on a different path, and the more you walk on that path, and the more you tread that path of holiness, God, God's going to make the path smoother for you and give you momentum in living a life that's consecrated to him. That's why the Bible tells us to renew our minds. It's the renewing of our mind. There's something that happens in our brain. And I, and, and I didn't have time to kind of bring in the science of this, but, but we, can, we can start new paths in, in our thinking, the way we think about what we're thinking about, and, and, and create new habits through thinking pure and holy uh, thoughts and that, that's application there i'm jumping ahead of myself but paul says let no one transgress a brother or sister in this regard it was as one theologian said that god has written no trespassing over every man or woman who, who is not his own wife or husband he has posted the warning trespassers will be prosecuted and so we don't transgress as christians we don't trespass upon another man's wife or another wife's uh, husband. We don't trespass. We en enjoy the gift. If we're, if we're married, we enjoy the gift that we have as, as a married person. And if we're single, we'd be content in, in the lot that God has given us. And we also, as single, as single followers of Jesus, we control our bodies with self-control and honor and holiness. Regardless, if you're married or single... You possess your body with sanctification in, in a holy, honorable way. This characterizes 
those who are pleasing Jesus, those who are pleasing God. So no trespassing. Amen? Here's some good news. Is that this battle for holiness and righteous living, a life that's consecrated to God, does not fully depend upon us. We have a part to play. We must be intentional. Don't get me wrong. Holiness doesn't occur in the lives of followers of Jesus by merely coasting through life. It does take some intentionality. We must be intentional to fight sin, to say no to sin and say yes to God, to consciously walk in the spirit, to consciously renew our minds. But it's not all up to us as if it's in our strength and in our willpower to live holy lives. Thankfully, God works in us to will and to do his good pleasure. We need to work out. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In the gym, muscles don't just come automatically by just being in the gym. And just going to church doesn't make you a godly person and a holy person set apart for God. All right, So there is some intentionality that needs to occur, but God empowers that. And in verse 8, Paul alludes to that. Verse 7, he says, For God has not called us for impurity, but for holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives us his Holy Spirit. Now think about this for a moment. First of all, Paul's saying that if, if you reject this lifestyle that god's calling you to you're not rejecting someone some man's opinion you're rejecting god's authority the authority of what his word says first of all right and as christians we are those who have said yes to god we have bowed to and submitted to jesus as lord of our lives and yeah we're not perfect and yeah we blow it and yeah we fall and yeah we sin but he's given us his holy spirit to overcome sin, to indwell within us, and to put to death the deeds of the body, to exercise self-control so that we're not out of control, destroying everything and everyone around us with passion of lust. In Romans eight thirteen, it says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Here's good news, saints. Not only does Jesus provide forgiveness and pardon for our sins when we have blown it in this area of purity, but he provides power, the Holy Spirit living inside of us, empowers us to live holy lives, to say yes to God, to, to keep our minds fixed on him and to have our wills submitted to him. See, it's by the Spirit that we're to put to death the deeds of the body. Not merely pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and just sucking it up. Now notice in, in Paul's call to holiness in chapter 4 here of Thessalonians that it is so God-centered versus man-centered. It's all about the will of God. It's about pleasing God. It's about the call of God. It's about the Spirit of God. This is God's work in the believers that we're to submit and surrender to and invite. But we need, we need a power beyond ourselves, outside of ourselves. Or I can say it another way, four-wheel drive is necessary. I've shared with you before the story of um, me and 
my wife's family in Colorado when uh, some of us younger cousins uh, had went to um, camping up in the mountains and we had two vehicles and I was riding in the four-wheel drive vehicle and the other one was two-wheel drive and we passed the sign that said, uh, please use four-wheel drive or four-wheel drive only and we kept on going past that sign and of course I was riding in the one that was going to be just fine. But Kendall's brother was behind in a, um, in a Toyota, um, or I forgot what it was, a Toyota. Um, it, wasn't too, it wasn't four-wheel drive. And so at one point, we're up in the mountains. We're on this single road. There's no passing on this road because if you try to pass, you go down, and there was a flattened car at the bottom. Uh, and so it, it looked kind of dangerous, and it felt kind of dangerous when, when he got stuck on the side of the mountain. You know, and, and so, you know, we're, you know, our you know, hearts beating. We're, we're kind of like, man, how, how is, how are we going to get the, her dad's vehicle down from there without having it go off the side of the mountain? And how are we going to, how am I not going to lose my brother-in-law off the side of the mountain? Right. And so we slowly, uh, one of her cousins was on, on the side, just kind of making sure it didn't tip over as if he could stop it, uh, on the side. And, and I was trying to get close, you know, if, if the, if the vehicle was to go off, I was trying to get close to kind of yank him out real quick and be a hero. But thankfully, he was able to back it down very slowly. And, and that vehicle did not make it up that mountain, right? Because four wheel drive is needed. And in this life, where there are all kinds of temptations that bombard us. There's a flood of lust, youthful lust that come our way through media, through, through, through signs on the highway, through, through images on our phone or on our TV, on our computers, and we're just bombarded and flooded. We need a power outside of ourselves. We need a power greater than ourselves to overcome the sinful temptations that come our way and say no to sin and say yes to Jesus and thank God that he hasn't left us powerless. He hasn't left us to the fight all by ourselves. He's given us power by his spirit. He's given us four-wheel drive through the power of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. And we activate that through prayer. We pray. We ask God for help. We pray lest we enter into temptation. And we fight with the word of God, the sword of the spirit. And we say yes to God and no to sin. Another analogy is that of a sailboat and a rowboat. There are many Christians trying to live a holy life, just exerting their strength, rowing hard, wearing themselves out. And I like, the, I, I like the illustration of the sailboat. The sails go up, they catch wind, and the boat is empowered to move along. And it's not, it's not as much effort as the rowboat. Now, holiness does take effort. Don't get me wrong. There is intentionality. But it's not all up to us to just grunt it out and work our way through the Christian life. We need to put the sails up in faith. Asking God for help, for strength. Be filled with the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul says in, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Put the sails up. You can't make the wind blow. And you can't make the Holy Spirit fill you, but you can ask and you can position yourself. And He will. He will work in you. 
He promises, God promises that the Spirit of God, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And you can allow Him to influence your thoughts and your words. It's not mere human work and power, it's divine work and power. As one theologian says, sanctification is at the same time both a divine work and a human obligation that can only be met through the power of the Spirit. Amen? And so let me just point out a couple couple more uh, points here. Two, two more points on this last section. Verse 9 and 10. And living a life that's set apart for God. God teaches us and enables us to love one another. Verse 9, he says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For indeed, that is what you are doing in all, in, to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more. And again, he prayed for this. He's prayed for this, that their love would abound more and more. And again, he affirms them and the good that they were doing. They were loving each other. God has taught you this. Now, how did God teach them to love one another? Well, obviously, the Old Testament teaches us to love one another. And surely the Apostle Paul had said something about Christians loving one another. But when, when the, the, the Thessalonians became Christians, they received the Holy Spirit, and inside of them, the Holy Spirit pours out the love of God into the hearts of every Christian, Romans 5.5. 5. You see, God teaches us to love because we receive love from him. Christ died for us, and he forgives us, and he cleanses us, and he accepts us, and he redeems us. And we experience the love of God in salvation And he fills our lives with love. That's what Christians are. That's what Christians look like. They love people. They practice righteousness, 1 John says. So he says, God has taught you. So he affirms affirms that they're walking in that. He says, do it more and more. This is also what a life of being set apart for God looks like. It's not just abstaining from. (laughs) Because there's plenty of people who abstain from rated R movies, but they are mean-spirited. There's plenty of people who vote a certain way that seems morally more, more acceptable and biblical and from their perspective, but are very mean-spirited and unloving. Lastly, God wants us, God wants our walk to be a witness to outsiders, verse 11 and 12. He says, aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs or mind your own business, I think one translation says. I have, had a friend years ago who was very, he, he loved the metal, he was very funny. He would get into other people's business at work. And, and he used to ask, there was, there was another young Christian who was a um, new, newer believer, and he would ask this question to a lot of the guys. He would say, you keeping it holy, brother? You keeping it holy? And he's real funny. And he, you know, and so you can kind of take that with a grain of salt, and you can laugh. And, and if you need to confess something, you could do that as well, right? Uh, but he asked this big, big guy, uh, new new believer and uh, he, his response was mind your own business and uh, and he responded back and he said well show me that in the bible where's that in the bible and he said first thessalonians 4 4 11 mind your own business 
it was great. It was great to watch that. He, he got a kick out of it. And of course, I'm sure that guy started using that for himself to, to quote. So Paul calls Christians to aspire to live quietly and mind their own affairs, to work with their hands as we've instructed you, verse 12, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. You see, God wants Christians to walk in such a way that it's a witness to outsiders. He wants, he wants non-believers to see the lives of Christians. Not only are they abstaining from immorality and, and living in sexual integrity, in, in sexual integrity, but, but he wants them to, to be content and diligent and work hard and be contributors to society. Not just sexually pure, but contributors to society. Theologian John Stott says this, that Paul frames his appeal to them in terms of brotherly love. His argument is that to work for one's own living is a mark of love, right? In, in, in Ephesians chapter 4, he said, let him who steal, steal no longer, but rather let him work with his hands that he may have something to give him who's in need. This is what Christians do. They're not lazy and they're not idle. Well, they're not supposed to be. And if they are, they need to be exhorted and warned and, and nudged. And that's what Paul tells the, the, the Thessalonians. Warn the idol. Warn them. Give them a nudge. Uh, and so, so John Stott says his argument is that to work with one, one's own, to work for one's own living is a mark of love because we do not need to depend on the support of fellow Christians while deliberately to give up work is a breach of love because then we become parasites on the body of Christ. You know, he makes this statement, be dependent on, that you may be dependent upon no one. Now that, that may sound like a lone ranger mentality and independence. And, and we see in other places in scripture that God calls us to enter dependence on, in, in the body of Christ because we, there's gifts in the body of Christ and we need one another at a healthy level. But he says in 2 Thessalonians, he says, he says, if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. Like, like, don't be idle. Like, work with your hands. Now, he's not condemning unemployment. He's condemning idleness and deliberately choosing not to work when a person can work and contribute to the good of community. And so this is, again, this is a part of living a life that's set apart for God. You know, the, the Greeks despised manual labor. Manual labor, in the Greeks' mind, was for slaves, not for those who were educated and well-off. And, and yet Christianity goes countercultural to that mindset because Jesus was a carpenter, right? He worked with his hands. Before he started an itinerant ministry at the age of 30, he worked with his hands. Paul was a tent maker, right? Paul and, and, and Paul intentionally didn't receive uh, offerings from certain churches like this one because he didn't want, he wanted to leave a witness to them. Even though he had the right to do so as a minister of the gospel, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, he's like, I'm not going to take that. I'm going to work with my hands to set an example, and this is what Christians are called to do. We're called to work hard and, and be diligent and, and be content with the lane that God has given us in life. Now, I wouldn't use these verses for not evangelizing, by the way. 
which some people might might because paul was a preacher and he was spreading the gospel and in in one sense he wasn't minding his own business in in a sense right because he was letting people know about god's business and inviting them to participate and, and become christians and followers of jesus but nevertheless we shouldn't use evangelism as an excuse to meddle to meddle in, in into other people's business okay so let me close the application because i've gone long reflect on and pray over your conversations and thought life as we're talking about holiness and living lives that are set apart to god think about your words and think about your thoughts when isaiah was confronted with the holiness of god in isaiah 6 He said, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people with unclean lips. He's convicted in that moment. As he's in the presence of holiness, he's convicted. Because God is pure and holy and righteous. And so a great prayer for us to pray, and if you can read it, let's pray this together. Let's read this together. Psalm 19, 12 through 14. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. And so here's a prayer to pray. To to pray, God, help my my words and my thoughts to be pleasing to you, acceptable to you. When you say something and you quench the Holy Spirit or grieve the Holy Spirit because of something you said or thoughts that you're lingering over, pray this prayer. Or you might want to pray Psalm 51, a prayer of repentance and confess the sin you know, and as I've said this before, we have to fight this fight against sin on an internal level. The, th- the thoughts in our head and, and in our hearts, we can't just address behavior and conform outwardly. God wants our hearts and God is looking at our hearts. And if we're going to deal with this sin at its root, we got to address the heart of the issue. And so if we're thinking on things that we shouldn't be thinking about, if we're thinking adulterous, adulterous, immoral thoughts, then according to Jesus's perspective, we're sinning. Whoever looks to lust after a woman commits adultery in his heart, right? He's looking at the heart. And so we have to fight sin at that level. And we got to pray and talk to God about the things that are going on within our heart and in our thought lives. And of course, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, whatever's in here, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come out. So reflect on your conversations. Oftentimes, I'm, God reveals something in my heart that needs cleansing and changing through something that comes out of my mouth. I'm like, whoa, should have said that? Or should I have said that? And so examining that before God. And, and next, rely upon the power of the Spirit by asking for His help. Galatians 5, 16 uh, says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit. See, that's a fo- that's a that's a positive focus. You know, it's not enough to just f- try not to focus on the the negative, on on the impure, but we need to focus on the pure. We need to focus on God. 
And it says those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit. Let's do that, church. Let's live lives in step with the spirit. And when we do, our lives are going to be marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is a life that's set apart for God. This is a life that's pleasing to God. A life that's abounding with the fruit of the Spirit. And lastly, replace impure thoughts with the pure truth of Scripture. It's not enough to just take thoughts captive. We're told to do that. Don't let them linger. If you're letting thoughts linger, impure thoughts linger in your head, confess it as sin that you've let the enemy put that tape in there, that DVD, or that, play that, those thoughts in your head. But you've got to replace it. You got to replace it. Those who come out of addiction know that it's not enough to just stop something. You got to you got to replace that habit. If you're trying to break bad habits, you got to not just stop a bad habit. You you got to replace it with a good habit. And so one of the ways that's key for us to do that is is meditating on scripture, allowing the scripture to sanctify us. How can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? With my whole heart, I, I, will, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And so store God's word in your heart. Treasure God's word in your heart. Focus on what God's word says and follow the path. Stay, stay on the path by his grace. Again, let me just close in saying Jesus has died to make us holy. He died to make us holy. And those of us who are Christians have been made holy once and for all. Hebrews 10, 10 says he has sanctified us. But the Bible doesn't just speak about sanctification in the past tense. It speaks about it in the present tense and in the future tense, right? And so he died to make us holy. He has made us holy. We really are saints, holy ones. We're set apart for God, even though we may not feel like it at times. Okay? But then we're being sanctified. And that's a process. And the fact that we're being sanctified and we're making progress, being sanctified, becoming more and more like Jesus, should assure us that what has happened is genuine. We have been sanctified. We have been justified. Theologians describe salvation in this way. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. So justification is something that happened when we became Christians. And I think that's foundational for us to get that, to know that, to be assured of that if we're going to fight successfully our war against sin as we pursue sanctification, holiness, godliness. We need to know that we've been made right with God, and then we need to learn to live like it. Live in righteousness, practice righteousness. And then we do so, and what we'll see in this letter, Lord willing, next week, that we do so in hope. We're looking forward to a day when there will be no more presence of sin. Where, where we, won't, we won't be bombarded and corrupted with the presence of sin any longer. Where, where Jesus is going to make all things new. And so we're longing for that. We're looking for that. And our hearts ache when we grieve the Holy Spirit. And we, we say things and do things and think things that don't align with the character of God. The holiness of God. 
And so let me close in prayer. Lord, Father, thank you. Thank you for all that you've done for us, all that you've done in us, and all that you've promised you will do. As 1 Thessalonians 5.24 says, He who has promised is faithful. He is faithful. He will surely do it. And so, Lord, may we live with that confidence that we are yours and that we will always be yours. And you're changing us. You're more committed to, to our holiness and our, our conformity to Christ's likeness than we are. And we thank you for that. We thank you that your grip on our lives is stronger than ours is. That your thoughts are higher than ours are. That your ways are greater and higher than ours. And so, Lord, teach us the way of holiness. Teach us the path. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And anyone here who feels shame or guilt, who feels unclean, God, may the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ, bring cleansing through them just coming to the light and experiencing grace and mercy. Sever the power of sin in our lives, Lord. May we not be passive. May we not give up in discouragement over defeats. But may we have gospel confidence to fight and to fight from a place of victory that has already been won for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. May he be gracious to you. May he lift up the light of his countenance upon you. May he give you his peace.